Welcome to Work Ethics, a series of conversations about building a better future. I'm Tom McCormick, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Matthew Carlos Staney. He's a Ph.D. student in the Department of History at the University of Michigan, where he focuses on the economic history of the United States. Currently studying historical iterations of black capitalism, Matthew is interested in alternative economic ideas and practices that sought to produce collective community benefits under a free market system. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so we've got a lot to get into, and uh, I have kind of a an ambitious goal for today, which is to trace the entire evolution of our understanding of work from the beginning of human origins to the present day, just to help us understand our current moment. And I figured what better way to do that than to bring in a historian who's been studying this for many years. So I think if you want to just introduce yourself and how you became a student of history, that would be a great place to start. Right. Well, thank you. You know, I've just kind of always been interested in history. Uh, History is a way for us to explore different ways and forms of social organization. And, um, the way they've kind of uh, influenced our current moment. But uh, history really kind of shows the possibilities of human organization and, uh, and the way that, you know, humans have changed and adapted and, and um, built their civilizations uh, throughout periods of time in different places of the world. Yeah, and I want to get really deep into a lot of those areas. I'm curious at what point you had the spark that you knew this was something you wanted to pursue as part of your career professionally. Was it high school, college? You know, was there a point when you're like, I want to do this for a living or really dedicate myself to this? Yeah, I mean, certainly in college. I had an interest in history from early on in in high school. I had gone to undergrad thinking that maybe, you know, as as an undecided student, but thinking that maybe I would go into the sciences, but quickly gravitated towards the history department, you know, and I've always had kind of questions about social structure and, you know, why things are the way they are. And, you know, history really gave me and has, is, is giving me the tools to really investigate that and explain that. And I think that's a slightly different understanding of history than many lay people have. They think of just like we find some artifacts or we read some old texts and it's interesting or something, you know. But I think what you're saying is tapping into something deeper, which is understanding something more fundamental about human nature or human potential or the evolution of maybe our brain and our social organization over time. I'm wondering if you could talk more about how history enables us to do that as opposed to just like scuba diving to a shipwreck or something like that. Yeah. So it's funny that we would like to cover the um, history of work because, you know, that that involves a number of disciplines, including, you know, there may be anthropologists who, you know, may be better suited than I am to talk about, you know, the ancient or certainly better suited than I am to talk about the the ancient forms of work that we can't even imagine today right um because we're we're stuck in these ideas of the current historical moment and take that for granted and it's a discipline that's based on the interpretation of historical material you know things that actually exist but we're also trained to question why 
something, for example, was preserved while other things were not, right? We can't just look at the historical record and say like, oh, well, this is what is telling this is going on at the time. You have to say, you have to look at who the author is, you know, is it coming from a place of power? You know, why was the decision made to preserve this particular item? And then also read into what it leaves out, you know, what groups of people or, you know, what power dynamics that we know exist are not present in those documents so that we can kind of read these silences and also the silences of the archive where there were just entire societies and communities of people uh, whose historical records were not preserved you know, in a deliberate way, but who there's evidence of in the historical record of, say, a uh, more powerful class or a, uh, a powerful group of people who decided then to preserve their own records that then make reference to people but may not be from their perspective. And so we have to figure out what that means, you know, and use kind of deductive skills to interpret those silences and those omissions to see what society was kind of like from multiple angles. Yeah, that's a really unique perspective. And I'm wondering if you have an example to kind of make it concrete for folks, like a glaring omission or a very significant silence, as you call it, in the historical record that you've studied or are aware of. Well, one of the one of the kind of most significant ones, especially in recent years, is, you know, this turn towards Atlantic history that doesn't preserve the kind of narrative life history of many enslaved people, but by tracing ship logs, by tracing inventory documents, by tracing death certificates and, and things like that, where they do show up in the record, historians can piece together, you know, a particular journey across the Atlantic, a particular sale of a human being from one person to another, what that might have been like to travel from one particular part in the African Gold Coast to the Carolinas um, or to South America. And those are the ways that we have to investigate the lives of these people is, you know, where in the historical record they, they show up. And then also to complicate that, right? And understand that this is, these people are being written about by people who presume to own them, right? So they're going to be portrayed in a particular way. So, but does that match other things that we know about history? Does that match what we know about the history that's preserved in Africa, right? Do, does that match with the history that's preserved in the Americas? And, you know, what that means for what it was actually like to travel across this vast ocean and and be transplanted to do something very specific and very different from what you experienced in your previous life and that's and that's how that's how historians have have gotten to that you know and looking at arrest records for more modern examples you know arrest records jail records um court records where people are only showing up, you know, poor people, marginalized people are only showing up in the record in these kind of punitive forms, right? We have to recreate that and then add what we do have from oral histories, for example, and from other types of archives, you know, and expanding what we think of 
as an archive. So an archive is not just like a collection of documents and pictures and maps and things like that, that you go through and say like, oh, I found, you know, something important that it says an archive could be an entire neighborhood, right? Archives could be a particular uh, artistic expression or creative expression, right? That's preserved in some way or another. Uh, so we have to, as historians, understand that there are multiple things that can contribute to uh, our historical understanding. I think that's a perfect point. I want to come back to some of the, you know, the modern history of slavery in the United States and the obviously the impact on where we're at today as a society. But I want to jump all the way back to the origins of human civilization or human organization so we can kind of trace some of these through lines to the present. So how far back should we go to start with where humans are starting to cooperate and identify some sort of work concept? Where does that concept even originate and how far back do we need to go? It's hard to say. You know, I mentioned anthropologist uh, uh, David Graeber has a book about the 5,000 year history of debt, right? You know, and he, of course, has specific historical reasons for starting 5,000 years ago, but you could certainly start well before then, right? And what's interesting about this period 5,000 years ago and before is that there was no single understanding of what work was. You know, work can mean many different things to many different people, but especially, I think for our purposes, we can think of work as the, the physical and intellectual labor that we do um, to continue to reproduce a so socially determined level of subsistence. So whatever we do to have um, what it, whatever it is determined that, you know, we should have a home, a plot of land to grow food, whatever that may be, work is what we do to maintain that. And that throughout history has been very different in places throughout the world and has been organized very differently throughout the world. And, and the division of labor has been expressed in very creative ways throughout history that are not necessarily more or less advanced. So, I mean, we're talking about a very difficult term to kind of define in, in early human civilization because of vastly different ways that people imagined their societies. Would you mind taking a couple examples to represent that level of diversity globally, like some of the different organizations or agreements, or you mentioned, you know, that this is socially determined. What were some different determinations that different social groups made in that 5,000 year period that we're talking about? Various anthropologists, historical anthropologists and archaeologists have discovered that there was a diversity of social and economic organization, but economic generally being subsumed to social organization that was represented through things like reciprocal forms of trade, resource distribution, and through uh, eventually private property and commodification, right? There are examples of the way, you know, Sumerians held, just speaking about David Graeber, he writes about how Sumerians um, 
you know, would sometimes every seven years or so cancel debts, right? Because it was detrimental to society to, you know, have these power relations over one another. I want to trace this to the present day because right now it seems like we have primarily one way of organizing society and one way of thinking about economics. And I know that's not entirely accurate. That's probably coming from a United States perspective. But is there the same level of diversity now and the way we think about work and the way we organize societies globally as there was thousands of years ago? Or have we kind of come to more of that end of history conclusion that it's capitalism and you know, there's certain rules that essentially the whole globe is playing by in this era of globalization. I'm I'm curious how that has evolved to the present. What's interesting about the era in which we live is that it often seems like this particular mode of production, the way we work, the way we consume things uh, and distribute things is transhistorical, right? It comes from a place of human nature, like you mentioned, uh, human nature is constructed differently throughout different periods, right? And so the modern history of our economy has, you know, convinced society that it is human nature to do things like compete. Um, and it's human nature to do things like exchange and it's human nature to be a commercial being uh, and participate in commercial markets when all of that is very historically specific and emerged out of a very historically specific context and like i said before then societies uh, organized themselves in all sorts of ways right that were not competitive that were often complementary where regions that had one resource would trade with a region that had a different resource and they had complementary trade relationships and they had commercial activity but it wasn't until recently that that became an imperative right that's the moment that we're living in where that compulsion for the production for trade and then that compulsion for profit is something that only developed within the last few hundred years and so being a historian you look at the historical specificity of these moments right and realize how contingent they are right how this moment of competition rose at a very specific point in history under very specific circumstances so Let's trace that couple hundred years that you just mentioned. You mentioned history is socially determined and contingent upon a series of events or relationships that evolve over time. So where does this modern moment that we're at, where does this break off from the the historical evolution that, that we're discussing? And, and what are some of the things that give rise to it? Because I feel like that's something that's always hard for me to wrap my head around and I imagine for, for many other people as well. Well, you know, I'm assuming, uh, you know, if we take that the, the kind of hegemonic experience for everybody over the past couple hundred years as the transition to a capitalist mode of production, work has been refigured in, in very specific ways, right? The means of production to reproduce your standard of living are now based on market factors. You have to participate in the market in order to have access to the means of subsistence and that has been kind of naturalized 
as a way of thought. And so that these kind of ideas of competition and accumulation really emerge over the last 200, 250 years as classical economics, you know, starts to influence European and imperial thought. And what that does is that it naturalizes the ideas of competition, right? It's saying like that is part of human nature. When in fact, according to the historical record, there were, you know, societies based on, you know, competition and violence and war and things like that. But there were societies that were egalitarian and democratic. And so I think what that means is that, you know, greed and competition are no more part of human nature than things like collaboration and collectivism are, right? And we as humans have the capacity to decide how we're going to live, right? You know, whether it will be exploitatively or it will be collectively. But over the last, you know, 250 years, we as a liberal Western society has been convinced that these are features of human nature, competition and accumulation and, and greed and so forth. But that's really just kind of responding to a very specific historical context, which is the rise of capital, right? And the industrial revolution. But capitalism imposes certain conditions that force people to compete at a market level, right? Or, or to enter the market. And then capitalists turn around and say, like, see, see this, this is how humans are meant to uh, interact with one another, right? So it's like this self-referencing, self-fulfilling prophecy. But it's been made transhistorical. It's been made so that everybody throughout all time has always been trying to optimize their benefit in um, relation to others. And we know that human societies have organized themselves that have been lost to history, perhaps, that we can't even imagine right now because we're kind of stuck in this hegemonic idea of, well, humans have to be doing these certain things. They have to be competing. They have to be greedy. So that's when economics became a science, right? The economics became a science over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. But a lot of what happened in the 19th century was separating economics from the social realm and making it its own kind of natural, logical phenomenon, which we know it isn't because it's based on human interaction. Right. And, and human interaction is contingent. But what economics has done is turned these social interactions into a science, you know, based on how humans optimize utility or their gain or whatever is best for them. But I mean, even even that kind of logic is too broad to even consider, because what to any individual person is important, right? <laughs> You know, whether it's money or more socially determined or family related or kinship related, that's going to change. And, you know, and depending on their like immediate situation, that's going to change from person to person. And we don't go through there and say like, oh, well, here is the most logical thing for me to choose to do based on a particular calculation that I've made out into the future. Right now, we just we react based on a number of social and material conditions. It's almost like the logic of taking something qualitative and trying to fit it to a quantitative model. Right. 
Yep, exactly. And so then work becomes, you know, people need to be productive. People need to achieve. People need to, you know, have a meritocratic system that elevates, you know, certain achievers over others. And that is the thought that we're stuck in right now, rather than like we can actually work more collaboratively, right? We can organize in different ways that are more egalitarian, but because we think we're supposed to think that human nature means we need to be competitive. We're looking for ways to reconcile that with that competitiveness, right? Or that greediness, right? So you have examples of like, you know, well, what's the best we can do under this system of greed and competition instead of what's a system other than one that is based on greed and competition. Yeah. And I think one of the arguments that I hear frequently, and, and I imagine you've encountered as well, is that at the end of the day, humans are just animals. We're just mammals. And so we're operating out of a biological necessity to just survive and thrive and therefore compete for resources or for dominance or something like that. What would you say is the counter argument to that biological necessity argument that that we often hear? Right. Well, I mean, I, I mean, my first question would be, which grouping of animals are we talking about and um, how are they related to humans? Because I don't think it's relevant. I don't think what one determines to be animalistic behavior is ra is relevant to how humans, you know, act biologically. Animals themselves organize in different ways. But beyond that, we as humans have a capacity beyond animals to organize ourselves in very complex and creative and and dynamic ways. And so why not do that? Right? If we have the capacity to do these things, if we have the capacity to think of new ways to organize ourselves that benefits everybody, why wouldn't we try to do that? Even if we have this, you know, latent um greed instinct, right? Even if we have that that instinct still in us, we do have the capacity to think of creative new ways to organize ourselves. So that's not an excuse because we can just, we can do it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of odd, like, like you mentioned that the pinnacle of human advancement and development and society, you know, theoretically is where we are at now, according to what a lot of people say, our technology is very advanced and we have a very advanced scientific understanding of different phenomena and things like that. But we're still the most rapidly competitive, like like if we were a very, what we would call unsophisticated animal, just fighting over scraps of meat or something like that. You know, there's still a lot of violence. There's still exploitation. There's still a lot of individualism, and, you know, specifically speaking about the U.S. context. So I think that's just a valuable point that's worth ruminating on a little bit is why is that the way that we're defining success for ourselves and our society currently? I want to break down the elements of our current organization. Just what are the elements that make it? So we mentioned accumulation is one. Another one is competition. Well, there's there's the consolidation of labor and there's the specialization of labor. So rather than being able to provide a level of subsistence for yourself and your family, um, however that is organized, by, you know, either social or kind of, you know, having multiple skill sets or having a community-based approach to that, 
we have uh, a much more alienated, much more siloed workforce, much more specialized workforce, um, and, a, and a much more consolidated workforce. So, for example, my job is only to collect garbage, or my job is only to prepare this one food, or my job is only to fix telephone poles, right. or my job is this couple spreadsheets. Right. Or uh, welding something onto a car in an assembly line. You know, I am a welder of vehicles. And that's one of the tendencies of capitalism is that kind of specialization and further efficiency, you know, these increases in efficiency in uh, the extraction of labor. But again, that's because of our specific historical context, right? That's because of a specific set of human interactions over the past two, three hundred years, right? Yeah, and I want to trace those. I want to I want to start 300 years ago or so and trace that set of preconditions that gave rise to to where we're at today because I think that's not widely understood or appreciated, you know, mm. that we're living in this blip on the radar of human existence that has been defined as the entirety of human existence as you mm. laid out earlier. So, where where does where do some of these ideas initially emerge? in in the discourse it's important to point out that you know a number of social inter types of social interaction have been happening throughout human history um you know commerce has happened throughout uh the history of civilization in various ways markets have been created under various circumstances throughout history but what we're seeing over the last few hundred years is the consolidation of property in a shift in the way that people access the means to their subsistence that hyper-commercializes society, that makes society based on markets themselves rather than a society with the markets. It's a market society so that in order to work, you need to enter the labor market. In order to consume, you need to enter uh, a market and can we pause there and define what a market means? Because obviously we've got a stock market, we've got a labor market, we've got a farmer's market. There, right. This term has a lot of different applications. So in the in the sense that you're using it, when, when did someone have the option not to participate in the in a market if they were self-sufficient or mostly self-sufficient in an earlier iteration of society? Well, yeah. I mean, there may be the creation of various markets for strategic reasons to get resources that you otherwise wouldn't have access to, to get, you know, established closer relations with, you know, other groups of people. But once those things were accomplished, right, you still don't have to look to those markets for your own kind of social and economic organization. So getting back to the point of where this, this modern idea of the market emerged, what were the the situations that gave rise to that. Why did that happen? Because that's so strange to me that we have thousands of years of human history and we don't have any, we have, like you mentioned, we have some accumulation, we have violence, we have greed, we have competition, but we don't have the level of capitalism and this current mode of existence that we're experiencing now. It only emerges in the past couple hundred years. So talk us through the, the history of that Right. Yes. So again, historically contingent, right? So, you know, markets were present 
exchange was present, commerce was present, but, you know, you had a specific set of historical circumstances, you know, in, in parts of the world, you know, most people point to Europe and a lot of people point specifically to England, where you have a new form of property developing and a new form of privatization taking place. So that once resources are being privatized and removed from general use, then you are compelled to then go in and try to accumulate in similar ways, right? In order to be able to continue to produce that level of the basic level of, of subsistence. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of somebody in England, let's say, and we're going back to, would this be the 1600s? So this would be the 16th into the 17th century. And a lot of people point to the kind of growing battle over enclosure in England over the course of that period as the site of the development the, of modern ideas of privatization and ownership over the means of production. And in this case, the means of production being land. And so enclosure, meaning literally cordoning off land and saying this belongs to an individual person or a group. Right. Because they have a new idea of improvement. They've decided that we're going to improve things and improvement could mean whatever they want. And they enclose land and say, I'm going to improve this land. It's either going to be pasture or it's going to be farmland, but it's not going to go fallow as it would under, say, communal use. So that idea of improvement seems like, you know, at first glance, it seems like a positive thing. Improvement seems good. Right. And it also seems like something that historically people would have always been seeking out ways to improve, make things better. Right. But it's a very contingent improvement. It's a very, it's an improvement for a very specific subset of people that appeared in places like England, you know, these these merchant classes and these aristocrats who were able to have political influence in the monarchy and then later in parliamentary system that pushed for more enclosure laws based on these ideas of improvement, right? You know, and that, of course, those ideas are socially specific. They're... Um, uh, historically specific, and they're not, you know, natural conditions. It's, I mean, it's not natural to say that there's one, I mean, it's not, you can't say that, you know, this improvement is a natural thing, you know, to improve. Right. And where, so where do some of those ideas come from and why do they sort of bubble to the surface right around that time with that class of people in England? Well, I guess there's there, there's a lot of there are a lot of reasons. There's this struggle to gain power among lesser nobles and aristocrats. So you're talking about a group of people whose status was based on wealth rather than uh, lineage or to, to the same extent, um, rather than birthright. And so their only access to power then is through things like capital. And in order to have influence over the governments, you have things like the Glorious Revolution in 1688 and the establishment of a constitutional monarchy and the establishment of a parliament, all of which was a process of liberalization led by these moneyed classes against the uh, established lineage of English power. Gotcha. And can you define liberalization in this context, since I know the word gets used in a lot of different ways? 
So liberalization is in, as in fewer controls over the economy, as in the broadening of markets, right? And the lessening of social or state intervention. So coming from the root of liberty, freedom, freedom to right. do what you want economically. Exactly. And so that, that also leads to ideas of like individualism, right? Minimal government and the pioneering spirit. Because you're also being separated from your sort of your cultural and family identity more at that point, right? If it's a lot not based on lineage, then you're being defined more as an individual and less as part of this bloodline or this social group. Right. And that I'm sure is one explanation of the rise of the, the kind of liberal individual, which really has its pinnacle in the late 19th century. But yeah, I mean, certainly ideas of private property and improvement and accumulation have contributed to this creation of the modern individual. So then let's keep tracing this through line, because I think this takes us all the way through to the present day, or that's my theory, at least. So obviously, in that time period that we're talking about, when land is just starting to be privatized. That looks nothing like the world that we're living in right now. So a lot of things have to happen subsequently to bring us to the, the present moment. So in England, what starts to happen? You've got land is being privatized through enclosure laws. And then what are the ramifications or the repercussions of, of that? They're vast, right? You know, you have now a displaced population of people who were once who once had access to commons that are now private property for the production of commodities right and so you have greater urbanization and with greater urbanization you have a more exploitable workforce right and so what emerges out of that is wage labor which means that you now have to sell your labor to somebody who has access to the means of production, whether that's land or a textile mill later in the 19th century. But, you know, it, it's the creation of new forms of labor and new forms of social stratification. You've got wage labor, and then you've also got the market, and then you've also got private property all playing off of one another to create, you know, this system. And then obviously, if you're defining land as the thing of value, land is finite. So then eventually you've sort of delineated all the land and who owns it. And then you run out of space eventually, right? By this logic. Right. And then you have to go to the people with the land to get a job. And then eventually, if you're in England, England's not even that large of a country uh, geographically, then you need to expand outside of England, right? You have to go other places. So then can you talk a little bit about, you know, historically what happens as that system gets refined and embedded into English society? You know, there, there are a number of historians who discuss these specific instances of capital development from the development of livestock and the livestock trade to, you know, other goods that are introduced to foreign markets that then put them in competition with either local or other sources. And they seek to um, establish a market share that forces people to then also participate in this in this system of exchange, in this system of commodification and, and realization. And then once you've got humans that are tied to value based on, like you mentioned, wage labor, obviously the, the lower the wage, the more value you can extract out of an individual person. Right. And the natural 
I don't know if you would say natural, but a logic that comes out of that is slavery. Because what if you can bring that wage all the way down to zero and exploit a person entirely and take all of the value that they've produced? Right. Yeah. And, you know, and some people, that's actually kind of been a significant argument is slavery capitalism among historians. I tend to be on the side that, that agrees that Atlantic slave trade and the American slave system was essential to the creation of modern capitalism and was part of a capitalist enterprise. But how can slavery be capitalist, right? Because it's not based on this kind of free labor, liberal ideology. And there are a number of ways that it is capitalist in that, that there was a market for human beings themselves, right? Markets were created by the labor of slaves, right? Cotton and textiles and things like that. So you can't say that slavery is pre-capitalist because it's right in the middle of capitalist development. And, and on the other side of that, you have historians saying that enslaved people were the ultimate capitalist laborer because they've been completely alienated from their work. So it's an interesting discussion. But yeah, I mean, that's the idea behind exploitation. How little can you pay somebody? And at some point, people thought it was okay to pay people nothing and treat them very poorly. So we've kind of jumped the Atlantic and we're talking about the now the development of the United States. So you've got people from England and other countries in Europe that have some of these ideas around private property, around competition, around expansion, growth, accumulation. They come to what is now the United States. And then how does that change or evolve in the United States? I mean, one thing that we mentioned is the advent of the slave trade and how that impacted the economic development of the United States. Are there other factors specific to the United States, obviously, there's Western expansion from the East Coast, and there's the idea of manifest destiny and taking indigenous land and claiming it and creating more private property out of that. Right. Well, I mean, look, the history in America is a, is a history of rapid accumulation of resources. And so you have natural resources, uh, labor resources that are you know quickly claimed and consolidated and put to use for, again, improvement. But you have these various systems taking place in the United States under, you know, very specific circumstances, again, very historically specific circumstances where very kind of significant trade was established through a very particular way of, you know, enslaving people and forcing them to work. But that also led to conflict over ideas like free labor, right? Enslaved people who were paid nothing were competition to workers who would not work for free for example. And so there was resentment in, in that sense, and there was anti-slavery sentiment in that sense. So there was this process taking place between, you know, a rapidly industrializing North with a rapidly growing immigrant population and a Southern society and economy that's based on slavery that is allowing, you know, the Northern industrial society to function, right? And at the same time, you're expanding west for more resources. But then, then there are any other number of historical factors from, from wars and depressions and, and things like that throughout the world that, again, contribute to how that develops in the United States as well. So then obviously we have, if, if we just continue with the chronology of history here, we've got eventually it comes to a head with the Civil War in the United States, which is 
pitting the North against the South because they're organized very differently and there's different social values. There's obviously the issue of slavery. There's also the more agrarian versus more urban or industrial. Can you talk about kind of the restructuring of our thoughts around these ideas of labor and progress in the context of the Civil War period of the 1800s? Well, the Civil War um, is just kind of an example of how creative and radical society can be. Ten years prior to the Civil War, very few people could imagine the end of slavery in their lifetimes or in the foreseeable future, right? 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued, right? And that's because of, you know, a sequence of contingent historical events from the creation of the Republican Party only, I believe, eight years earlier than the Civil War to westward expansion that led to these conflicts. And so people sitting in, in 1850 thinking, okay, well, 15 years from now, we're going to have a completely different society. That's impossible to them. But because of our capacity of humans for rethinking things and because of, you know, a set of historically contingent events, we ended up, or the United States ended up going to war over the issue of slavery. I would love to talk a little bit more about the political development alongside that, because, you know, one of the things that you always hear was Abraham Lincoln was a Republican and the, the obviously the, the identity of the Republican Party back in that Civil War period is very different than the identity of the Democrats and the Republicans now. But can right. you talk about the formation of the parties and how that identity evolves over time and how that specifically relates to, to slavery? So the Republicans essentially took over for the Whigs and the Whigs, the Whig Party split up many forming the Republican Party, which was the party of capital. It was the party of the elites. It was a party of the urban elites. And it was a party of the interest of commerce and, and exchange. So they, you know, they want to defend their access to, you know, things like raw materials. And, and they envision, you know, a particular way of working around the idea of free labor, right? Meaning that every person, again, usually white men, but every person having, a, uh, having the ability to enter into a negotiation and contract for their labor as, again, part of this idea of the liberal individual, right? Which is at odds with slavery, right? So that's why you have a lot of anti-slavery sentiment, you know, not abolitionist in that, like, they were actually against the institution of slavery. But they were anti-slavery in that it prevented things like a free labor market from developing. And so that's that's the party that of Abraham Lincoln then. Right. The war is fought. Obviously, the the North wins. You mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation. And then, you know, our society is being completely rethought in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. what happens in, in the post-Civil War period where you've got hundreds of thousands of slaves that have now been freed? You've got sort of a realignment of, of society. And like you, you mentioned, you know, capital functioning differently with people entering the labor market now. Right. Well, I mean, that was a very contentious period. And again, another example of how creative humans can be as a society, you know, as part of a society. There were struggles over 
what to do about the citizenship of recently freed people, what to do about votes for formerly enslaved people. And there were questions about how to readmit the South into the Union, under what conditions would we allow that to happen. Under Andrew Johnson, they were pretty lenient, but as sentiment in the North grew, thinking that, well, the South went and destroyed a lot of stuff for this crazy institution of slavery, they need to pay some sort of price in order to be welcomed back. As that sentiment increased, radical Reconstruction took over and radical Republicans in Congress were able to pass measures like the 14th and 15th Amendment that established citizenship rights and the right to vote for African-American men. And you also had programs like uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, right, and the Freedmen's Savings Bank that were meant to, you know, as kind of quasi-private public institutions that are meant to help people who are basically, you know, started with nothing, build some sort of, of wealth and participate in the economy. And you had a lot of rhetoric about the equality of all of man and woman, right? You had a lot of rhetoric about expanding democracy and expanding rights. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity, right? And so they did accomplish a number of things. They established public school systems in the South. That was part of radical reconstruction. But eventually there was a retrenchment. And what years, what years would we be talking here? We're talking about 1867 to uh, the 1870s. And the 1870s is really the end of Reconstruction, where a new ideology took over, the, the, this kind of idea of redemption and, you know, the lost cause, meaning that the South was just in its cause and it was thwarted by power, but also this uh, idea of reconciliation between North and South around ideas like white supremacy. And so as that is taking place, less emphasis is put on Reconstruction and a lot of racially conservative politicians were able to revoke many laws and impose many new laws that made that restricted things like voting or owning property. And simultaneously, you've got a continued development of technology that's accelerating a lot of these forces that we talked about earlier in the conversation. Can you talk about that a little bit in parallel? Because you've got factories springing up, you've got railroads, you've got all this technological innovation that's happening in the wake of the Civil War. And mm -hmm. I don't know what the word for it is, like I said, the restructuring of society. So mm -hmm. how does that play in? Because then you've got, I know you've got a migration of lots of people from the South into the Northern factories. I don't know exactly where that falls in the timeline here. Well, it's happened a number of times. There have been several migrations to Northern industrial centers from the South. There were attempts during Reconstruction to actually industrialize the South that didn't really take hold, except in a few kind of major metropolitan areas. So then what are the next big changes that happen in the development of the United States post-Civil War 
and some of the aftermath of the Civil War. Now we're getting into the early 1900s. Well, economically, you know, after the Civil War, there was massive public investment in things like railroads that led to crises of debt and overproduction and overexpansion. But there was an emphasis on development. I mean, there's a major emphasis on development as the Industrial Revolution picked up from where it had started prior to the Civil War. So you have this massive consolidation effort, you know, around railroads and connecting to various markets around the country to industrialize. And I mean, historically, it's the result of state intervention, state priorities. It's a result of capitalist interests. Um, but certainly we see throughout the 19th century a significant increase in technology used for the production of commodities specifically. And then you've got, in the early 1900s, you've got the beginning of the automobile. You've got the assembly line factory model, like the Henry Ford mm -hmm. type of logic that starts to be applied widely across factories and production across the United States. Right. So then these new ideas of, of corporatization are, are emerging, like a, in corporate organization. What does production look like? What do relations between, you know, industries look like? And you have this development again of this Fordist, corporatist, efficient and consolidated production and labor. And obviously then you've got the Great Depression. So can you talk about that post-Civil War period and then how that contributes to all of a sudden the Great Depression at the end of the, the 1920s? Well, I mean, so there was there was a Great Depression before the Great Depression, right? There was a Great Depression, a global Great Depression after the, the Civil War in the 1870s, which contributed to things like a retrenchment against Reconstruction in the United States. But we can talk about the Great Depression as we can talk about any kind of crisis brought about by market-based capitalism over the last couple hundred years. It's just, I mean, it's prone to crisis. Right, it's prone to crises of overproduction. Right, it's prone to crises of the availability and circulation of capital. It's prone to crises of debt. So the speculation on railroads, specifically in the United States, led to a financial crisis. But there are other factors, such as you know, imploding economies in Europe or war elsewhere. But because of these tendencies to not be able to regulate capital perfectly, right? The, for, is the, for the inability for a market to regulate capital perfectly leads to crises because there are blockages at various points of the, the mode of production. And so when one of those blockages occurs, we have a crisis. And that just kind of goes to show that these classical economists, these neoclassical economists who have, uh, so classical economists are, are interesting in that they never actually, you know, abandon the social aspect of, you know, how the economy works. It's the kind of neoclassical economics of the late 19th century where people said, no, I think economy has its own logic. But we know that there is no perfect logic to, you know, economic processes because of these tendencies for crises of capital and of markets and of things. 
And is there, you know, that almost makes me think of the physical world, something like water or plants or something like that. If there's too much, it has to rebalance in some way, like like an ecosystem, right? If you have an ecosystem that gets taken over by an invasive species, like I know there's invasive carp in the Great Lakes, for example, those reach a point and then they the system becomes very out of balance and then it has to naturally rebalance itself. Is, is there a parallel to the natural world there with how capitalism reaches a point of overaccumulation or imbalance? Well, the, the, the classical economists and neoclassical economists would say that there is a natural balance to the economy, right? That there is an equilibrium that can be reached once all outside intervention is mitigated and capital is allowed to flow freely. But like there's ne there's never been a situation under which that is even, has even been possible. You read my mind because I was going to ask, what's the best example when that was closest to being true historically? I think anybody except, you know, some maybe some modern economists reject that idea at this point. You know, economy or economics as as an as a discipline and as as a science has really thought of itself as natural. And everybody who studies society and social interaction knows that it's not and that it actually takes intervention. It takes social intervention in order to keep these balances. And, um, you know, that leads to things like, you know, ideas of Keynesianism and things like that. But all that does is put the state on the side of capital, right? How do we keep capital flowing at, you know, the level of the macro level instead of how do we ensure that everybody is meeting a basic level of subsistence? And, you know, there, there could be some equilibrium that can be reached, but it will be socially determined. It will not be natural. Sure. So let's keep marching through the chronology here, because I think it's interesting to see how this stuff all develops over time. So then post Great Depression, are there ways that capitalism or our society is restructured once again, given the, the lessons from the Great Depression or the trauma that we collectively experienced? Well, sure. I mean, like we um, we entered what many historians considered this kind of post-capitalist era based on Keynesianism and other kind of, you know, Samuelson, the neoclassical synthesis and, and so forth that shows that there must be some sort of state intervention or must be some sort of intervention in the economy at some level, you know, and that's argued over minimal level, maximum, maximum level, in order to be able to kind of maintain some, some sort of equilibrium, right? And so that became the, the kind of consensus after uh, the Second World War. But it had its detractors, of course. It had the National Review that were kind of advocating for the opening of markets and so forth. And those ideas took hold and they eventually emerged as neoliberalism, you know, over the course of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. All right, so we're getting closer to the present day. Can you talk about the emergence of neoliberalism, what that means, and how that took hold? Liberalism imposes, it implies, you know, laissez-faire uh, market-based economics, meaning that there's minimal intervention in it. But one thing that kind of speaks against that is the growth of the state, right? Over the course of, you know, the last half century or, or more. 
and the the state is growing, right? So uh, if the state is growing, we can't be in this kind of neoliberal laissez-faire capitalist environment. But I mean, the truth is the state is growing to continue to intervene on behalf of capital. And the state is not positioning itself in such a way as to intervene on behalf of a basic level of subsistence for all of humanity. So what we have is, you know, more F more state efforts to promote and expand capitalist enterprise. And we have at the same time, significant deregulation of industries and we have uh, austerity and that we have a, a reduction or elimination of many of the social programs that were established during the New Deal era and afterwards. And then I think this might be an interesting point to pivot a little bit to your area of focus that I know you're working on with your dissertation and your specific area of study, which is Black capitalism in the United States. Can you Talk a little bit more about that work, because I think that's something that's very understudied and it's just not known about, you know, in, in the in the more wide discourse around the development of capitalism in the United States. Right. Well, uh, you know, I'm interested in black capitalism as uh, a set of examples of alternatives uh, or alternative conceptions of, of economic action um, within a free market system. And black capitalism is, is really broad. You have black capitalists that are kind of integrationist and corporatist, and then you have black capitalists that are separatist and collectivist. But what I'm interested in is how, you know, what are the ideas and what were the projects behind black capitalism that envisioned a collectivist society operating within a broader free market framework? Because that seems like a contradiction, right? And, you know, of course, African-American history being so integral to, you know, the history of this country and also being some of the most oppressed people in the history of this country, looking towards the kind of creativity of alternative forms of organization um, really, really interests me. And, and I think that it's places like that where, where that emerges, right? But unfortunately, what I tend to find is that these collective capitalist projects can be successful under certain circumstances, but usually the market absorbs the project and it's no longer able to, to serve its collectivist function. And can you give us some specific examples, just because I think most of the listeners probably aren't even familiar with what these projects looked like, the time frame, and what was achieved? There are different ideas of Black economic organization going back to before the Civil War. A more recent example would be kind of what emerged after the broader or the, the kind of peak of the civil rights and black power movements. One of the projects I've studied is Soul City in, uh, in North Carolina. And Soul City was kind of envisioned as this um, utopia almost by a man named Floyd McKissick, who was once uh, the director of the Congress of Racial Equality. He was black nationalist. He was kind of on and off separatist. 
and he presented the this idea for a racism-free collective community built from the ground up. And he presented that under Nixon's presidency where he was emphasized, where Nixon was emphasizing black capitalist enterprise. So he pitched it as a black capitalist enterprise, but one that would serve black people and, and provide them with their needs and their basic level of subsistence. And it's interesting to see his language change from the beginning to the end of the project, right? From the beginning of the project, he says, I'm not even thinking of it as black capitalist. It's more like black socialist. And, and in fact, it's like neither of those. It's just a new form of organization that we're going to try uh, that benefits black people away from, you know, the racism of the suburbs, away from the you know, surveillance and the oppression of urban areas, right? And initially had some success in the 70s getting public support for, you know, subsidies and grants and so forth for building both a, an indigenous economic system within the, within the community and the community itself, the houses and so forth. But what's interesting is that as the economy liberalizes, as neoliberalism takes hold, right, that austerity then turns on those public programs that gave them their initial start to, you know, start building this town. And by the end of the 1970s, most of the public money has dried up, mostly due to austerity. And it was impossible to acquire capital from private sources for a collectivist effort. And so you have the language changing of Floyd McKissick from, you know, 1969 saying it's not black capitalist, it's black socialist, but really it's just a new idea to the end of the 1970s saying that we are capitalists and we want to be included in the capitalist system as exploiters rather than as just exploitees, right? So there's this shift that happens. Is that the actual language, exploiters? Yes. We want to be involved in the capitalist system as exploiters and not just exploitees. That's the language that he used in 1978. It's a depressing story. Yeah, yeah. So you see this, this collectivist effort that is trying to function within a broader free market system, right? That's trying to use whatever resources it has, both in the private sector and the public sector. Public sector doesn't work because in a free market system, the public sector is going to be minimized. And the private sector doesn't come through because it's not a profitable venture, right? It's in rural North Carolina, Right. It has this kind of utopian idea to it. Right. So why is the Standard Oil Company of Indiana going to give a bunch of money to it or like supply them with something unless there is going to be some sort of capital return on it? And so now after a few homes were built and after, you know, an industry incubator building was built, Soul City is just now an abandoned village, you know, overgrown. And that's, I think, evidence that goes to show the market is not interested in collectivism, right? The market is not interested in egalitarianism. And the more you rely on the market, the harder it is to be going to be to accomplish something like that. I want to circle back to something you said earlier, which was that Nixon was interested in these ideas right. or was amplifying these ideas. And, you know, Nixon is not somebody to somebody like me who you would think would be interested in an idea like this. So what was his motivation for 
having an interest in this or promoting this idea of, of black capitalism within the United States? So he's responding to the Johnson administration, right? And he's responding to the New Deal, but uh, more kind of directly, he's responding to Johnson's Great Society, right? Which is pumping a lot of public dollars into communities themselves. And so he's basically responding by saying that doesn't work. The only thing that will work is removing all of that public money and encouraging the investment of private capital. And so here's my 15-point plan to replace government spending in urban areas or in ghettos. Ghettos was actually the, the, the official term used by everybody at the time. So to replace that public money with private investment, and that included things like, you know, guaranteeing loans to corporations and eliminating risk in various ways um, or, or mitigating risk in various ways. But really, it was an effort to pull public support from poverty initiatives and then reframe it in this kind of and and, it's, and, and then historically situate it because black black capitalism has it has a history. So Nixon is placing it in this um, kind of historical tradition and saying we need this black historical tradition to replace this public money. Right. And so then that turns into like just the elimination of regulations and austerity. So obviously that seems like a manipulative play on the part of Nixon and the administration. What level of buy-in was there from people like McKissick or other folks who are involved in the development of black capitalist projects? There was a good amount of buy-in. And, you know, again, there's these traditions of, of industry and, and industriousness go back to, you know, Booker T. Washington and beyond. And so you have black capitalists, people, you know, black financiers, black bankers, black businessmen, black business leagues that do support this idea of black capitalism. And of course, black capitalism, again, is is a hugely diverse set of ideas. And, you know, they're not all agreeing on one particular thing. And in fact, some black capitalists just rejected that idea of black capitalism altogether. But you also had, of course, by that time, a massive rejection of capitalism among black activists and black organizers. And so you had a number of organizations that said the goal is not to gain capital. The goal is to eliminate capitalism, right? Is the, the goal is to eliminate that thing that has been exploiting us this entire time not to participate and not participate in it. But you, you did have some, I mean, Nixon had minimal black support, less than he thought he would have, but still was able to make up, you know, the vote in other areas. So there was support. It was, it was limited, but um, there were, you know, specific business groups and industry groups, black business groups that bought into this and, and really saw it as something that could propel black communities into prosperity. They gathered symbolically, I think in 1980, with all the black conservatives talking about like how the welfare state has failed and how private capital is really the only the only option for equality. And McKissick was at that meeting in 1980, as was uh, Clarence Thomas, right, the Supreme Court justice, Thomas Sowell, conservative economist. But the question is, like, how does that happen, right? And why does that happen? I mean, for me, because obviously something happened where McKissick went from saying what he said in 1968 to joining this black conservative capitalist forum in 1980. And 
you know, it just goes to show that the market crushes everything. So yeah, let's let's take that thread and continue forward then. So you're, we're at around 1980. Then you're going to get increasing globalization of supply chains. And I, I know that's been happening historically, but it seems like it really accelerated at some point in there. And then you've got the North American Free Trade Agreement in the early 90s. And then obviously you've got the rise of the computer as well, starting, you know, in the, the 90s and then to the 2000s and into the present day. So you can you trace some of those trends, increasing globalization, the rise of more knowledge work or computer work or data replacing, you know, more factory work or assembly line work or manual labor type uh, activities? Well, I mean, you know, globalization is just kind of a trend that's been happening forever. But, you know, the, the type of globalization that we're seeing now is expanding into new new markets. So under capitalism, there are certain imperatives, right? One imperative is expansion, because if you're not growing, you're dying. And you look for new markets, you create new markets, you consolidate markets, you consolidate new forms of labor through a process of globalization. But also the, there's an imperative of technological advancement. You need to be able to squeeze more and more capital out of each commodity through higher efficiency or you're going to get left behind, right? So there is the imperative of technology. So certainly under capitalism, we've had a massive, you know, exponential growth in our technological capabilities. And that certainly has had uh, an impact on the way we work, right? Uh, many people working from offices instead of working on factory floors or in the fields. But yeah, it's all it's all part of this this process of of consolidation and specialization and, and and efficiency that goes towards the increasing extraction of capital, right? The more efficient extraction of capital. Yeah, and this is kind of where we meet the present moment and a lot of the things that have been on my mind as someone who works in tech and with a lot of other people in tech. One thing that's been really interesting is there was a point where it wasn't even the human work. It was just human attention became monetized. So a new market is with, with something like social media, you don't even necessarily need to be doing what we traditionally think of as work in order to be creating value in something like scrolling on social media and getting fed ads and then that leading to certain patterns of consumption, for example. Right. And that's dead capital. Right. And that's part of the inefficiencies or that, that's part of the kind of crisis prone uh, inconsistencies and, and um, contradictions within capitalism. Can you talk more about that? Because uh, I think there's a lot there in terms of <laughs> in terms of what we could be doing with our time and our energies, given the level of technology that we have now that has made a lot of things more efficient, made a lot of things better in a lot of ways. But somehow that hasn't been spread out among you know, all of the citizens of the world were not necessarily all, you know, enjoying a higher standard of living. Right. Well, I mean, in, in fact, sometimes in, in many cases, we are under a capitalist system. In many cases, the standard of living even for, you know, lower classes is improving because consumer materials are becoming cheaper and more readily available, right? They can purchase comforts more or leisure items more cheaply, right? And it's more abundant. So it's interesting because it's not necessarily our, our standard of living that's getting worse in the first world country for, you know, in the first world country, in the, in the capitalist country, right? But it's that difference between 
resources, right? We still are getting fewer and fewer resources as the economy expands and as capital grows. So we're getting a smaller and smaller share of that. And that's what that exploitation is. So even if we have, we can go to the grocery store and, you know, buy a turkey and have whatever you want for dinner. Um, and you can go to the gas station and get gas. We are putting more and more of that into the economy and receiving less and less back. And so there may be this overall trend towards an increase in standard of living, but it's certainly not fair. It's certainly not egalitarian. It's unevenly distributed. Um, and it's incredibly exploitative. And then on the exploitative aspect of it, talking about technology and how is it had, how it has not, you know, improved, you know, the standard of living, you know, of all of humanity in, in, you know, equal ways or in comparable ways is, I mean, the truth is with less work, we as human beings should have more leisure time, right? So it should be a good thing that robots are taking our jobs because then we have time for parenting and family. Then we have time for education. Then we have time to, you know, contribute to communities in ways other than producing commodities. But what we have is the ownership of the means of production of technology consolidated, you know, within a particular class that has to grant access to it in order for people to be able to subsist. Right. Yeah. So we have organized ourselves in such a way that allows certain people to benefit from this uh, expansion of technology and others to not benefit. Yeah. So you mentioned that the overall standard of living for some people continues to improve even with this this level of exploitation. But let's just sort of name the failings of the current system. And then I don't want to end on a, a negative note. I want to talk about some more hopeful examples or models that we can look to. But one is what you just mentioned, where technology is in improving and increasing at a seemingly exponential rate, but our amount of free time or leisure is not increasing in parallel, right? So that's one that's one major problem with where we're at currently. Also, it seems like this alienation from work has become even worse as we've got increased levels of specialization, where somebody's role is so narrow that it doesn't fit into the larger understanding of how the world should operate or how society should function or how I'm connected to other individuals. Right. Or you can't identify what piece of this commodity belongs to me and my labor or was created by me and my labor. Yeah, I know there are a lot of implications. Right. So if I'm a designer and I design like, you know, the the logo for a, a shoe, for example, I'm contributing to a product that has all these other elements. It's got supply chains, it's got raw materials, it's got marketing, it's got all sorts of elements where I'm I'm not able to own it in that same way and understand that it's, it's impossible to see the web of interconnectedness that makes a product like that possible in the modern era, as opposed to if I was a blacksmith or something hundreds, thousands of years ago, making a product that maybe it was me and a couple other people that were involved in the production of this of this product. Right. And then you just split the profits. But the thing is, the way commodity and values work today is that, you know, value is the kind of accumulation of materials and labor plus the surplus value on top that the capitalist extracts by bringing it to market. So everything that's made has value that was created by, you know, a person. Right. Mm -hmm. And so 
in order to not be exploited, they would need to be able to extract that value back in, in some other way, right, to be compensated for that. But of course, that compensation will have implications on things like profit, right? I mean, if you if you didn't exploit people, you wouldn't have profit because the labor was done, the raw materials were uh, assembled, and the commodity has been produced. But now you're going to bring it to market and charge something that does not then go back to the labor that produced it. And in the most extreme example of this logic, um, you've got some of the richest people in the world, like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, who are billionaires, but the companies that they built, it was the labor of thousands and thousands of people across the world that had to go through all sorts of different steps to produce that end product that they're selling and that they're extracting then just a ludicrous amount of value from. But it's so opaque to most people that they don't see the, the piece of, you know, the 20,000 people that led to the development of a particular product or the millions of people in some cases that led to the develop of a company like Amazon or something like that. Right. And, and the idea is, again, private property, money, individualism. Jeff Bezos, uh, Elon Musk have a right those billions and billions of dollars that they've accumulated through, you know, the exploitation of markets and the exploitation of labor because they, you know, acquired it through a liberal capitalist system. I mean, there's, there's what you've just mentioned, which is that reduces the compensation for all of the other people involved uh, in the creation of these things, but also it comes across all of these questions of what purpose money serves, right? As a society, we can decide the purpose that money is going to serve. And if it's going to serve a social purpose, that is to kind of like make the distribution of resources more fluid, more efficient and easier, and to make exchange, again, more efficient, then, you know, hoarding billions of dollars would be against that premise, right? And I think... The assumption that people make is that we can't go and say, hey, you can't have that. And the truth is, like, we can. <laughs> we can say you've extracted too much money from society and it's having a detrimental effect. Therefore, we're going to just redistribute it for more useful purposes. Right. And just because you've pointed your efforts into something that is in this particular moment, regardless of its utility, just producing vast amounts of capital, that doesn't mean that you can somehow elevate yourself outside of a basic subsistence level economy. So I think the argument that you often hear around this is it's almost sort of a hero worship argument where there's these incredible innovators, incredible revolutionary thinkers, and they need incentives in order for them to make their ideas reality in order to realize their vision, you know, Elon Musk needs all that money so he can take us to Mars. And Jeff Bezos needs all that money so he can get us a package in, you know, in one day that we ordered online or something like that. It's like there's individual people. And if we don't allow them to have unlimited profit potential, then we're stifling their creativity and their potential. Right. And my argument against that is that there probably is some level of variance in the population of creativity or innovation or potential. But 
there's no way it's on the magnitude of the level that we're seeing with someone like an Elon Musk or a, or a Jeff Bezos. If you just do the math, if you divide up their wealth and think about how many people you could give this money to, right? If you could give hundreds of thousands of people a very significant amount of money to innovate on things that they are passionate about or they believe in or new ideas that they have, and just based on the way the human brain works, there's no way that someone like Elon Musk is thousands of times more innovative than a collection of thousands of people. It just seems impossible. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the premise of capitalism is once realization has occurred, capital needs to be reinvested into the valorization process, meaning you produce more new things, right? And one of, again, one of these contradictions and these blockages in the chain of the mode of production is this accumulation and this hoarding, right? And this hoarding of value and using it for really just not helpful things like starting a stock market war over Twitter. So I think we've traced the origins of the way we think about work, the way capitalism has developed, and even just the way we've thought about organizing society from the beginning all the way to where we're at now. And obviously, it's sort of a bleak picture, uh, and we haven't filled in all of the different steps along the way. But I don't want to end on a bleak note, because I think optimism is the only thing we've got as a society to try to make something better in the future. So are there examples that you've seen or that you think people should go out and research themselves that have been counter to everything that we're talking about, that have been more collectivist, that have not been prioritizing accumulation, or that have been thinking about the values of the whole community, have been more egalitarian, have been more ethical, equitable, et cetera? What, what are some of the, the leading examples that we can study to try to build alternative pathways out of the mess that we're in currently? You know, I'll, I'll start that response going back to what we previously discussed about like, well, how do we make Jeff Bezos or how do we make, you know, Elon Musk, who's going to take us to Mars or who's going to, you know, revolutionize consumption. And the reality is this is one of those self-referencing moments in capitalism where it's saying because Elon Musk was created, this is how people are kind of intrinsically built to function, right? Um, when really this you know, Elon Musk was created specifically because that's how people like that are created under this specific system, right? And if you're talking about motivations, right, if the motivation is to just be richer than everybody else, that's a pretty, I mean, narrow and weak motivation to me, right? I think there are much stronger motivations that are more socially based, right? That are more globally based, that can encourage, you know, not just one Elon Musk, but thousands of Elon Musks to go out and innovate for because they are motivated in ways other than the massive accumulation of wealth, which seems pretty flimsy to me. But we've convinced ourselves that that is the goal of humanity, right? Over the last couple hundred years, we've decided, well, the goal of humanity is power and accumulation and competition and greed, going back to classical economics, neoclassical economics. But it doesn't have to be like that. It has only been like that in very specific points in history, and there have been innumerable alternatives to that, innumerable alternative motivations, innumerable alternative ways of organizing ourselves. And we as humans have the capacity to think creatively about how to motivate ourselves to innovate and to do interesting things. So I know you mentioned innumerable examples, but let's enumerate a couple of them. 
Okay. Just so people have something to go, you know, follow up on if they're interested. Because I think, you know... So, I mean, like, if you're talking about contemporary examples of that, you're, I mean, it's very hard to discuss. You have community-based organizations like Cooperation Jackson in Mississippi that are kind of like public government, community-based um, organization that is trying to assert collective control over community resources. You have the Autonomous Zone in uh, Seattle. You have collectivists towns in Spain that are famous. But the truth is, these are all very small examples of thinking about alternatives while still living under a hegemonic liberal capitalism, right? And so... Like your research on black capitalism, that same that same phenomenon. Right. So, I mean, certainly they can be, certainly they can be successful at some level over some period of time, given the work that's that's put into it. But I mean... They're constantly fighting, being pulled into the market, right? Because that's the environment that they're working in. I mean, prior to this, again, going back to Malinovsky. Malinovsky, an anthropologist, ethnographer, identified all of these forms of exchange based on, you know, different forms of respect and patronage and, and things like that. And needs and just community needs that are not based on taking advantage of one another, right? That are not based on trying to get a better deal, but the intent of which is to distribute resources equitably. So those societies do exist. They have existed in the past. They have existed in the recent past. I'm sure there are some that continue to exist at varying levels in the present. But that shows, one, that we have the capacity to operate collectively, right? That operating collectively is just as much as human nature as anything else, right? But it's also important to remember that we can come up with new things. So the past shows us like, you know, yeah, we, we can come up with these kind of new, or we can come up with alternative conceptions of, of social organization, but we can, you know, come up with something in the near future that had never crossed anybody's mind that just changes everything right? That's our capacity as, as human beings. So how do we do that? You know, at work, organize, 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 organize with, you know, people in, you know, your office, organize with people with the same job description, organize with people, you know, in the same industry, organize with people across industries. And, you know, the more you organize, the more you communicate, the more ideas get exchanged, the more creative we can be about how we organize ourselves. But if we're going to be stuck in silos, if we're going to be stuck in offices, not talking to one another and just getting our own specialized piece of production taken care of, coming up with those creative alternatives is going to be very difficult. That's a really good note to end on. A nice hopeful note and something that I think everybody can take into their work this coming week and start to think about ways that they can communicate and organize themselves differently than they than they have in the past uh, with more of an open mind about the possibilities. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for a wide-ranging discussion on a lot of topics. Yeah, that really was, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, that was the goal was to take us all the way from his, you know historical origins of humanity to the present. And I think we at least partially succeeded. So thank you for bearing with me to break all of these ideas down. And I really appreciate the time. And hopefully uh, the folks listening will, will find this stuff helpful or inspirational in some way.